Chapter Seven of All in the Day's Work by Ida Tarbell. The Sleepervox recording is in the public domain. A first book on nothing certain a year. Now that McClure's was really started, I felt that on what I could do for them and the two or three articles in which I had interested Scribner's, I could live, and that I might drop everything else and devote the bulk of my time to my real business, a study of the life of Madame Roland she had never been out of my mind soon after my arrival i had found to my joy that my daily walks to and from the national library where i was spending most of my time could be laid through the very quarter in which her father had carried on his trade of goldsmith and past the house in which she had been born the church where she had taken her first communion the prison where she had spent her last days along the route she followed to the guillotine what luck what luck i used to say that i should be taking the very walk she took it was amazing how little things had changed the house where madame roland was born still stands at the western point of the ile de la cite looking down on the statue of henry the fourth and the busy seine and to my right the pont neuf in her day the heart of paris and still to me one of its most fascinating spots as she slowly came to life something more important began to take shape something which had been little more than a series of dates and events in my mind i began to see the revolution already well on its way when she was born i saw it rising around her sucking her in using her when she thought it had gone far enough and should check its excesses throwing her over without her head while true to type it went the whole way finally falling exhausted into the hands of a dictator equipped with guns the physical scars of all this long train of violence could be seen on my daily walks or studied in the musee carnavalet where paris has gathered documents and relics of what she has destroyed as well as of what she has achieved but besides the scars of madame roland's time were other scars dating from the centuries scars of revolutionary outbreaks of the same type hardly to be distinguished from those of the period i was trying to visualize and the more you knew of these explosions the more they seemed to fit together you could not bound madame roland's revolution as i had supposed what i had called the french revolution was only an unusually violent episode in the lifelong struggle of paris to preserve herself as a free individual the slave of no man or group of men revolution had always been her last resort in making herself what she was in forcing kings to do her bidding tolerating them when they fed her well beautified her protected her but throwing them over when they asked too much money for the job they did the marks were all over the city how could i understand madame roland until i understood the elemental force which for centuries had been sweeping paris in big or little gusts did these who sought to loosen the force suppose that they created it or could control it once loosened had madame roland confident as she had been of her ability to act as providence frank as she was in saying that no role but that of providence was suited to her powers been anything more than a revolutionary tool and victim it had always been at work and still was i must find out about it and it looked at the moment as if i were going to have a good opportunity to watch a revolutionary revival of what proportions no man could tell 
the panama affair had disgusted all self-respecting frenchmen is the republic to be a failure they were asking nothing so gives heart to the leaders of lost causes disappointed political groups advocates of panaceas and particularly to the radical-minded as a rousing political scandal panama stirred all the parties of france to action bourbons and bonapartists extreme conservatives socialists of all the many varieties and particularly the anarchists there were four groups of the latter no one of which would have anything to do with any of the others it was the independents who now went into action members of this group worked alone letting not even their fellows know what they had in mind a branch of the order existed in the united states and it was one of them alexander berkman who attempted this same year eighteen ninety two to assassinate henry frick in pittsburgh the independent who acted first in paris was jules ravachol by name a man some thirty-three years old a dyer by trade with a courageous but not a criminal face so i thought when a little later i secured his photograph and measurements from the criminal identification bureau for mcclure's magazine ravachol began by blowing up various houses it was like a toxin all over france similar outrages followed and they continued at intervals for two or more years the crowning one a bomb thrown in the chamber of deputies in december of eighteen ninety three by a notorious anarchist known as auguste vaillant several deputies and eighty or more spectators in the gallery were wounded seriously it was a ghastly affair the outbreaks and the rumors of outbreaks as well as the actual destruction had a bad effect on the nerves of many of the french there was alphonse daudet madame daudet had offered to get me a pensee for the collection i was making for mcclure's magazine and arranged for me to call for the copy after we had tea she took me to the library to see how alphonse was getting on it was my first glimpse of him a little man with a shock of straight black hair which stood out rather ferociously at the moment evidently from running his fingers through it his face was pale his eyes astonishingly black and bright he had lost two or three teeth and the remaining ones were not very good he was terribly excited he had not finished his pensee he said because he had just had a visit from an anarchist the servant had let in a man who had demanded twenty francs to buy a wagon-load of dynamite to blow up the hotel de ville he grew more and more excited as he talked i really expected the man to kill me he said and i got out this revolver which i always keep in the drawer and he pulled it out to show it to me a pretty affair he said if while you two were visiting in there a tragedy had gone on in here i so shared the general nervousness that more than once when i saw a man on the omnibus carrying a package i feared a bomb and abruptly descended yet along with all my nervousness i was always nosing around hoping to see a bomb go off it seemed to me that that was my journalistic duty but i never saw anything more than the ruins they had caused i did see a pretty good revolution one that had all the earmarks that i had been finding in my attempted study of revolution it was in july of eighteen ninety three this time it was youth in revolt the youth of the latin quarter and the beaux-arts 
from start to finish the revolt went on practically under my windows the annual ball of the beaux-arts in the winter of eighteen ninety three had scandalized paris as i remember the exhibit which outraged was a lady who promenaded with no other covering than a mosquito net the protest finally reached the chamber of deputies where a member beranger took it up in a serious way and proposed a restrictive law which angered the students it was they said an interference with their right to amuse themselves immediately long and picturesque monomes single lines of men one hand on the shoulder of the man in front the other grasping a hand of the one behind threaded their way up and down the boulevards particularly in the vicinity of the luxembourg chanting at the top of their voices conspoe berger conspoe Lowe's, chief of police down with the puritans the demonstration began on a saturday and that night a great crowd centred in a cafe in my neighbourhood the place was packed inside and out with youths noisier and noisier as the hours went on finally the crowd became so unruly that a squadron of police charged them there was a great hubbub and in the melee somebody hurled one of the heavy white match-boxes which were used on all the tables in the latin quarter restaurants a dangerous missile it hit an innocent spectator who had come to see the fun a young man of twenty-two or twenty-three from the other side of the river and killed him the students were wild with rage and all that night and all next day they tore up and down the streets pulling up trees knocking over kiosks breaking windows the shopkeepers of paris having the experience of centuries of revolutionary outbreaks behind them knew when to retire and before monday night the heavy wooden shutters with which they protect their fronts were all up the doors closed and the quarter was alive with soldiers and mounted police the centre of the disturbance that day however was not the latin quarter but the streets around the chamber of deputies where a great band of angry students kept up a tumult there were funny incidents a big group of deputies came out to look over the demonstration and on the instant the air rang with the jingling of hundreds of big copper sous pitched on the pavements to cries of panama panama the dahomeans were pets of paris in those days a picturesque addition to the population handsomer creatures never were seen it happened a carriageful naked to the waist attempted to pass through the crowd at once the students set up the cry beranger beranger bring em a fig-leaf bring em a fig-leaf by tuesday the latin quarter had begun to look sinister the inevitable had happened a popular disturbance never remains long in the full control of those who start it advocates of all sorts of systems and causes join it seize it if one of them can produce a real leader a student's revolt can easily become an anarchist raid with looting and arson on the side by professional lawbreakers who always come out of their hiding-places when anarchy breaks out as the to-be-expected invasion of the latin quarter from without began destruction increased omnibuses were seized and at strategic points piled up as barricades but the rioters never succeeded in making a stand steadily and quietly night and day platoons of mounted police moved up and down the boulevards and into the quarter 
i tried at first to go on my usual round hoping to learn something of revolutionary technique but after i had been caught in a crowd the cavalry was driving from the place de la sorbonne had heard bullets whistling over my head had been forced to take refuge in the portal of the church i was content to stay at home however there was excitement enough there our street was narrow and steep when the cavalry charged it would fill up with the rioters the movement was amazingly quiet no shouting no shots the only noise the clatter of the horses feet as they drove the mass ahead the invasion of our street produced panic among the foreigners in the house there were a couple of middle-aged american women on the floor below me out seeing the world but they had not bargained for a revolution and during the three or four days our revolution was going on they shut themselves night and day in their room the egyptians were in a worse panic they whispered horrible stories of what happened in revolutions and one night when fires had been set in our neighborhood and the firemen were out they were sure we were all going to be burned alive here we are fourth floor cried one of them too high up to get out we'll all be dead by morning a week was as long as the students could hold out in the torrid weather there were too many cavalry too many soldiers too alert a police force and also there were the apaches the anarchists it was no longer their revolution they gave up and by the end of the week kiosks were replaced trees replanted windows and doors opened and we were all going on in our normal way over all quiet nevertheless it was a pretty fine little revolution while it lasted was it not like ravachol and vaillant a symptom the kind of symptom by which the rise of the revolutionary fever always announces itself were there those who would nourish these symptoms as carefully as madame roland and her friends had nourished them in her day if so you would get your explosion and for what good i was asking myself madame roland had lost her head because she was not content with the first revolution which had given the country a constitution she wanted to get the king and queen and the highborn of all varieties out of the way she wanted a republic she lost her head to those who were not satisfied with getting king and queen out of the way who wanted her and her followers out of the way as soon as they began to cry for order her republic had collapsed under napoleon bonaparte there had come a return to the bourbon then a republic then a return to a bonaparte and again her republic but was this corrupt and vulgar republic i was hearing about any better than the corrupt and scandalous court she hated and helped overthrow was the affair of the diamond necklace any worse than the affair of panama was the bastille a more ghastly prison than the spot where they were now sending political prisoners the devil's island of the tropics i did not have the consolation of a fixed political formula to pull me out of my muddle it is very easy to put everything in its place when you have that and are armed with its faith and its phrases but here was i with a heroine on my hands whose formula and methods and motives i was beginning to question as i was questioning the formula the methods and motives of france of the moment what kept me at my task prevented me from throwing up madame roland and going on a blind research for the nature and roots of revolution 
was the brilliant and friendly intellectual circle into which my quest of madame roland had led me among the names i had been advised to include in my series on the writing women of paris was that of a mary f robinson an englishwoman of the pre-raphaelite school a poetess of delicacy and distinction who had married one of the eminent scholars of france james darmstadter a hebrew and a cripple one only had to look into his face to know that here was a great soul and what interested me so was that this something in his face his remarkable head wiped out all sense of incongruity between the mating of this slender and exquisite woman with this man of alien race and crippled body i never felt for a moment an incongruity when monsieur darmstetter learned i was after madame roland he was immediately helpful you must know leon marillier of the Ecole des hautes etudes he is a great-great-grandson of madame roland he has papers which have never been given to the public i will write you a letter which he did a letter which brought me an invitation to dinner this dinner was the gate to a whole new social and intellectual world here was a french academic household of the best sort simple hard-working gay leon marillier was an excellent and respected scholar jeanne his wife a sister of the breton poet anatole Braz, was not only a skilful household manager but like the wives of many french scholars her husband's amanuensis copy and proofreader and general adviser she had particular charm among parisians for she was a breton who loved her pays and kept its distinguishing marks without being provincial here i found too eager to go over the papers which leon marillier spread out after dinner for my inspection one who was to prove a most helpful and delightful friend charles bourgot the eminent swiss scholar a friend of my friends the vincents now back at johns hopkins but this was not the end of it there was a closer connection leon marillier's mother the great-granddaughter of madame roland and they quickly passed me on to her here again i was invited to dinner and here i discovered a circle different from anything i had ever known a household of brilliant men presided over by madame marillier a most gracious woman of fine intelligence freed and mellowed by a tragic life as i was to learn more than any woman i have ever known madame marillier came to stand in my mind and heart as the personification of that quality which the french hold so high bonté the leader of the group of men was a sorbonne professor of history charles seignobos he was a learned man who carried his learning not as an accomplishment but as a social utility seignobos was a not too dogmatic socialist and materialist a good pianist a marvellous talker a lovable and pungent personality around him there gathered every wednesday evening for dinner at madame marillier's table a number of young men all serious students liberal minds hard workers after dinner six or eight more habitues of the house were sure to drop in for coffee and for talk among these regular habitues was lucien Eyre who at that moment was seeking to convert to socialism the two men who in the years since have done most to make the doctrine an impregnable factor in political life in france jean jaurès and leon blum the recent premier of france 
Eyre at that time was the librarian at the Ecole Normale, as well as the managing editor of the Revue de Paris. In both positions, he met many young would-be scholars and writers. When one of them seemed to him to have the makings of a liberal thinker, he worked over him as a missionary works to save a soul. He was so working in the early nineties over Jean Jaurès and Léon Blum. Occasionally, Lucien Eyre brought to the Seignobos circle one of those whom he was seeking to convert. If Jaurès and Blum were ever among them, they made no particular impression on me, much as I disliked to think so. They were simply a couple of Lucien's young men although Eyre believed the socialistic state he sought would and could come by a peaceful evolution the thing i remember best about him was an exhibit of indifference to bloodshed which shocked me to the core the night that veant threw the bomb in the chamber of deputies the group was dining with madame marillier lucien was late not an unusual happening we were halfway through when he came in pale exalted we all turned in our seats as he standing told us how he had been in the chamber when the bomb was thrown of the explosion in mid-air of the wounded all about him he had no word of the suffering only of the political bearings of the deed but the wounded lucien broke in senor Bosse, who could not endure the thought of pain cela ne me fait rien said lucien his opposition to bloodshed was intellectual not emotional like that of Seignebaud. On the face of it, nobody could have been less at home in such a group than I, a tongue-tied alien, all eyes and ears, contributing nothing but my presence. Yet it came out before many weeks that Mademoiselle Mies, as Seignebaud called me, had a place at the weekly dinners. Undoubtedly the friendship that sprang up quickly between Madame Mardinier and me, as well as the fact that I asked nothing but to listen, explained it. I could afford to listen. I had never heard such talk. There was nothing on earth that was foreign or forbidden. Opinions were free as the air, but they had to fight for their lives. There was a complete absence of pretense, and sophistry was thrown as soon as it came to its feet that it was a friendly circle its acceptance of me was proof enough friendliness began at the door when i arrived wednesday evening it was always senubos who came rushing to meet me seized my hand helped me off with my wraps danced about me asking eager boyish questions about what i had been doing since i was there last the talk begun i was forgotten unless by chance he suddenly recalled me then he would jump up run over demand what do you think of that half the time i was thinking less about what they were saying than about their exciting personalities they seemed to be vividly related to life but much of their talk was based on something that was not life abstract literature learning speculation i realized this when they talked of america senubos saw it only as he had read about it in books it seemed to him not to be producing that intellectual elite on which he felt the salvation of society depended a group capable of doing the thinking and planning for a world of lesser men it was the lesser men who were coming to the top in america confronted with superiority from america he refused to believe it native one summer i presented to him a friend of mine a woman of exquisite mind and manner she is not american he said 
they do not produce that kind in america where was she born where was she educated in kansas i said he bounded out of his chair like a ball it couldn't be it couldn't be kansas is only a half-settled state one has only to look to see that this is a rare type that you have brought here she never came out of kansas i never saw him more outraged than one day when pressure was brought to bear on him to accept a position in the university of chicago at a handsome salary jumping up he raced around the room chicago what can a man of intelligence find there you can't build an intellectual centre on money and organization it is a growth five hundred years from now chicago may be fit for scholars but not now he mistrusted the intelligence of the united states but less than that of england americans were not stupid englishmen were he wanted none of them in his circle i met this prejudice head-on when i asked permission to introduce him to a brilliant young english friend h wickham steed i had never known a young man who was sure of what he wanted to do in life or who was preparing for it in a more thorough and logical fashion than steed his ambition was to become a foreign correspondent of the london times he knew that for this it was necessary for him to be familiar with the languages the history the men the politics of the leading countries of the continent he began by taking some two years in germany now he was acquainting himself with the french language literature politics leaders i found steed especially interesting on a subject of which i knew little although we were having reverberations of it in the united states this was the philosophy of karl marx steed was familiar with its then status in germany knew its leaders liebknecht and engels he envied me my relations with the group at madame marillier's envied me my wednesday night dinner as he might very well could you not present me he asked i knew how jealous they were of their circle and knew too they thought the english a stupid bigoted race and wanted none of it but steed was certainly not stupid besides he was young and i had the feeling that nothing would be better for him than contact with these enlightened friends of mine and so with some hesitation i told senobos about him and asked him if i might bring him never the english are stupid you are wrong about steed i argued you ought to be willing to give him the benefit of the doubt after some arguments i was allowed to present my protege as i expected they pounced on him mercilessly it was fine to see the way he held his own and a relief when after an hour or more of baiting senubos came to my corner and in a tone of surprise and wonder said mademoiselle mees your englishman is intelligent when they came to that conclusion they took steed in and from that time on he was welcome all through the years of his brilliant career as a correspondent and later through the war as foreign editor of the london times the association with senubos continued in his recollections through thirty years steed tells of his introduction to the circle a sort of entrance examination which convinced his examiners he was less stupid than he ought to have been this then was the group in which my interest in madame roland had landed me as the weeks went on the intimacy grew greater whatever occurred to them that might help me in my work they suggested 
it was through their introduction that i was given every opportunity in the manuscript room of the national library to work over the large collection of roland manuscripts which had just been catalogued indeed i was the first person to work on them in the library delightful as well as important to my enterprise was the invitation madame gave me in the spring of eighteen ninety three to go with her for a fortnight to les clos a country estate which had been in the roland family for at least a hundred years before the revolution after the death of monsieur and madame roland in seventeen ninety three les clos had passed to their daughter it now belonged to madame mardier who managed it giving special care to its chief yield grapes made into wine on the place le clos lay in the beaujolais some thirty miles north of the city of lyons and close to a hamlet called Thézay. here madame roland had spent some four years while her husband served as inspector of the manufactures at lyons the chateau was little changed so madame mardier told me the activities were what they had been a hundred years ago it was a rare chance to see my heroine in a different role busy with other duties than those of student tuft hunter political diplomat providence to a nation i needed to see her in a more natural and helpful environment for i was beginning to mistrust her the journey to le clos with madame maradier taken in may was an adventure for both of us how much she had jeopardized her position in her own family by travelling with a foreigner and a protestant i did not realize until the day we spent sightseeing at dijon she left me for an hour to visit an important and ancient aunt i should not dare take you with me she said my aunt would cast me out if she knew i was travelling with a heretic to reach le clos we left the railroad at villefranche and climbed in a horse-cart for an hour or more steadily up hills across valleys a high broad country striped by many coloured ribbon-like farms dotted by stout buildings of dull yellow the stone of the country sprinkled with splendid trees vineyards and orchards Tizet, the hamlet we sought lay high we drove between its walls turned into a lane and stopped before a big gate in a yellow wall behind it lay le clos a little white chateau of louis the fourteenth's time with corner towers and red-tiled roofs a court on one side a garden on the other from this garden one looked out over a magnificent panorama of hills mountains valleys stretching to the swiss alps in the east on clear evenings the snow-caps were visible and now and then the round crown of mont blanc glowed on the skyline like an immense opal within the chateau there had been little outward change from madame roland's time there was the same great dark kitchen with its stone floor its huge fireplace although now a stove helped out the same shining copper vessels on the walls there was the same brick floor in the billiard-room with its ancient table its guns and caps of successive generations of soldiers on the walls the brightest place within the house was the salon done in yellow plush family portraits on the walls a piano books i had an apartment to myself looking out on the garden and beyond to the mountains a bedroom toilet and workroom severe as a nun's cell with its uncovered floor its unadorned walls but containing every necessary comfort and a wealth of books five hundred or more in my workroom including several magnificent sets 
among them voltaire complete in seventy volumes they nearly all bore eighteenth-century dates and some of them the name of roland himself indeed the home was rich in books of value in madame marillier's library there were two thousand or more but these were only what was left from the collection she had inherited she had given leon marillier complete early sets of voltaire rousseau diderot she had made a collection of scientific books for louis lapique one of the members of her paris household and another of historical books for charles seignebaud and still there were all these hundreds many of which i had the right to believe madame roland herself had handled we ransacked them for marginal notes and hunted through the drawers of old desks and bureaus for papers finding not a few small bits which were grist for my mill books were about all the original possessions of leclos that the revolutionists of the seventeen nineties had not made away with the chateau itself had not suffered seriously though there were still some slight scars but books aside it had been completely stripped of furnishings even today, so madame marillier told me it was not unusual when inquiry was made about the origin of some interesting old piece in a beaujolais farmhouse to be told oh that came from leclos a hundred years ago the revolution stripped leclos of its possessions and all but ended the family but it did not succeed in convincing all the beaujolais of its beneficence there was not a little outspoken anti-revolutionary feeling still abroad the marseillaise was never played in tizé i was told the cure and the municipal council would not permit it nor would they allow the fourteenth of july to be celebrated while i was at leclos there was a sharp dispute in a neighbouring hamlet on the plain of the marseillaise the bandmaster refused to lead when it was asked it was put up to the band who voted yes thereupon the master laid down his baton and went off in a huff madame roland's revolution was not ended but i did not think much of such dark matters at leclos they did not belong to the years i had come there to relive those were only gay happy useful years i knew from her letters before me she could and did fill the role of a local providence adjusting her activities and reforms to what her constituency understood and was willing to accept she filled her time as i saw my friend madame marillier filling hers busy from morning until night with the affairs of the estate visiting the people prescribing remedies for man and beast vegetables and vines arranging a marriage for this pair making an invalid more comfortable taking care of some peasant's wayward son climbing up the steep hillside to early mass to set a good example discharging naturally and intelligently that responsibility to the family the estate the dependent countryside which the frenchwoman seems to accept as her contribution to the state it makes her something steady wise superior a strong factor in the economic social and religious stability of france i had never seen anything which seemed to me more useful than what madame marillier was doing and i had opportunity to judge for everywhere she went she took me with her her invariable card of introduction to these natural-born sceptics of the value of all persons not born and raised in france was mademoiselle comes from the same country as your vines that was enough for them their vines had been devastated by repeated visitations of the phylloxera 
and it was not until the introduction of american roots that the vineyards had recovered they were looking well now i was welcome at once they treated me as if i were the benefactor yet i doubt if any of them knew where america was most of them with whom i talked placed it somewhere in africa africa they did know as a name at least because many of their sons went there for military service one of the most surprising things to me among the french high and low was their utter indifference to the geography of the rest of the world why should they bother about the rest of the world there was only one land about which they should know that was france and that they should know to the last corner even many educated people i met did not distinguish north from south america in madame darmstetter's drawing-room i met cultivated people who believed that all americans carried weapons in their pockets and that indians walked the streets of chicago when i protested that it was against the law to carry a revolver and that the only indians in chicago were those that were imported as they imported the dahomans they smiled incredulously many of them i concluded got their notions of what america was like from the exhibits in a certain public hall on the grand boulevard here you paid a sou or two to look through stereoscopes at amusing and sometimes very improper pictures here the walls were decorated with illustrated newspapers from different countries and among them were always copies of the police gazette as a matter of fact it was in this hall of the grand boulevard of paris that i saw the first copy of the police gazette that i had seen since those days back in rouseville when my friend and i carefully studied the underworld in the sheets that we could slip away from the bunkhouse of my father's workmen the visit to le clos with its grist of impressions the conviction that i had seen madame roland herself in her happiest as well as her most useful days completed the study of source material for her life on which i had been working as i found time through the twenty months i had been in paris it rounded out the woman she was softened the asperity which i was beginning to feel for her also it strengthened my suspicion that while a woman frequently was a success as the providence of a countryside she did no better than a man when she attempted to fill that function for a nation now i was ready to write my book of course while i was doing this i must keep the wolf from the door and it was not so easy in the year eighteen ninety three for a stray journalist in paris to get out of the distracted american market orders or pay for orders the depression of the nineties now in its third year with five more to go was working havoc everywhere it was hard to get your money even if your debtors consented you had earned it i was depending at the moment largely upon the new magazine mcclure's it had started in the summer of eighteen ninety three an undertaking which only the young and innocent and the hopelessly optimistic would ever have dared it has always been a marvel to me that mr mcclure and mr phillips were able to hold on through that dreadful year but they did and with a resourcefulness even gaiety that nobody but those who saw it can appreciate i knew perfectly well that if the magazine lived i should get all the money i earned but in the summer of eighteen ninety three they did not have it it came to a serious pass with me a point where i did not have a sou or anybody to whom i could confide my predicament not for the world would i have told my devoted madame marillier that there was no money in my purse 
not for the world would i have confided it to madame a and as for the americans on the scene i was bent on impressing them with the fact i was really getting on at all events it must not go back to titusville or meadville pennsylvania that this questionable venture of mine had brought me so low and so one warm summer day i took my sealskin coat which really was a very good one quite out of keeping with the rest of my wardrobe by this time close to scandalous i took the coat and marched over town to the montepiete they were polite to me but i was a foreigner the coat might be stolen probably was what credentials did i have whom could i give as reference there was nobody in the town that i was willing to have know what i was doing but did i have documents to prove my identity yes i said i had and i would bring them so i left my coat and raced back to the left bank for my credentials and what were they what did i have there were letters from my publishers there was my check-book exhausted but nevertheless a check-book without thinking it would be of any particular use i took my allegheny college diploma the inspector passed lightly over the letters of editors the stubs in my check-book but the diploma impressed him and so it was on my allegheny college diploma i made the loan which helped me over the bad months of eighteen ninety three while i was waiting for a check from a land in the grip of one of the most serious money famines that it had ever known although there might be anxious moments over money i was freer to work on my book than i had ever been and work i did as hard as i could all that terrifically hot summer my friend madame marillier had gone to brittany she begged me to come along but i had used up all my vacation money in my trip to leclos a trip i had extended to switzerland and a chain of french towns where there were beautiful things i wanted to see to bourg masson cluny autun there was nothing that i wanted to do more except finish up and go home but the finishing up was not so easy i had undertaken the study of this woman in order to clear up my mind about the quality of service that women could give and had given in public life particularly in times of stress i had hoped to come out with some definite conclusions to be able to say the woman at this point will be a steady intuitive dependable force she will never lend herself to purely emotional or political approaches to great social problems she knows too much of human beings her business has always been handling human beings building families has been her job in society you can depend upon her to tell you whom to trust whom to follow whom to discard these intuitions of hers about people are born of centuries of intimate first-hand dealing with human beings from babyhood on they are among the world's greatest values and she will be no party to violence she knows that solutions are only worked out by patient cooperation and that cooperation must be kindly she knows the danger of violence in the group as she knows the danger of selfishness she has been the world's greatest sufferer from these things and she has suffered them in order that she might protect the thing which is her business in the world the bearing and the rearing of children she has a great inarticulate wisdom born of her experience in the world that is the thing women will give that was what i had hoped to find madame roland giving and i had found a politician with a providence complex 
i had also found what i had been trying to shove aside as women do new proof of that eternal and necessary natural law that the woman backs up her man madame roland had been royalist republican revolutionist according to the man she loved she had served her man with unyielding conviction would not temper or cooperate intolerant but what woman in america seeking the vote as a sure cure for injustice and corruption would listen to such a message that of course was no affair of mine my affair was clearing my own mind so far i had only succeeded in adding to its confusion even in destroying faiths i had held there was the ancient faith that you could depend upon the woman to oppose violence this woman had been one of the steadiest influences to violence willing even eager to use this terrible revolutionary force so bewildering and terrifying to me to accomplish her ends childishly believing herself and her friends strong enough to control it when they needed it no longer the heaviest blow to my self-confidence so far was my loss of faith in revolution as a divine weapon not since i discovered the world not to have been made in six days of twenty-four hours each had i been so intellectually and spiritually upset i had held a revolution as a noble and sacred instrument destroying evil and leaving men free to be wise and good and just now it seemed to me not something men used but something that used men for its own mysterious end and left behind the same relative proportion of good and evil as it started with never did i realize my ignorance of life and men and society as in the summer of eighteen ninety four when i packed up the manuscript of my life of madame roland to take it back to america for its final revision in the peace of my home of course i told myself i would go through with it i would put down what i had found as nearly as i could even if it had not got what i came for and then came the question can i get what i came for is it to be found the real answer to my question about woman in society the point or position where she can best serve it can i find an answer to this other question that has so disturbed me the nature of revolution apparently i told myself as i packed my bag finally to go back to america you have only begun but at least you have a new starting point cheer up make a new plan and i was making a new plan i had been making one for some time it was laid down economically professionally and socially with as much precision as the plan with which i had come to paris in eighteen ninety one it was a plan for my return to paris i would go home get my book into shape try to convince the scribners that it was worth their publishing i would get a good long visit with my family the only thing i felt now to be worth while in life i wanted to be sure they were there that the house was there that my father's chair stood by the living-room centre table under the drop-gas reading light that the family sunday dinner was what it had always been i wanted to hear my father ask the blessing at the table to sit with my sister and mother afternoons out on the shady side of the lawn i wanted all the home flowers i could gather and it was queer what a big place flowers took in my dreams of home my mother was one of those women for whom they say anything will grow and she had flowers summer and winter one of the deprivations of not having money in paris had been that i could not buy flowers 
i had to content myself with lounging around the flower markets on the square of notre dame i lingered there almost as much as i did over the bookstalls along the seine but at home i could gather all i wanted i would come back to france on different terms my friendly publishers would give me work i had schemes for books and articles which i felt sure would interest the scribners that history of women for instance then there was this lively friendly aggressive delightful mcclures there were plenty of things i could write for them i would take up an apartment in the latin quarter up high where i could look over the roofs see the sky i would have a salon like madame marillier's she would find me a bonne à tout faire and i could have people into dinner madame marillier seigneur Bos, and perhaps lucien Eyre and louis lapique and charles bourgot would come the summer would bring over my precious american friends the vincents emery's hazens and my sister must join me life would be full and satisfying while i cleared up my mind on women and revolution and continued my search for god in the great cathedrals it was with this baggage and a terrible thirst for a long drink of family life that in june eighteen ninety four i said au revoir to my friends i felt so sure it was au revoir the first two months after i reached america i spent at home convincing myself that my family in spite of the trials it had been suffering was unchanged in its ways its loyalties and its philosophy if life was not as easy materially for my father and mother as their long years of labor and self-denial gave them the right to hope i found that they were enjoying that most precious experience the evidence of the continuity of their lives my brother and his fine wife with their children two girls and a boy lived only a few doors away and the grandchildren were as much in one home as in the other they gave i found a continual fresh zest to the household and its doings my father again had the legitimate excuse for going to the circus which our growing up had taken from him the children want to go my mother had a strong justification for family picnics and birthday celebrations on which she tired herself out the children enjoy them so for me those children were a challenging experience three years had made the youngsters keen observers and i found them appraising me in the fashion of natural unspoiled children launched on one of the long narrative monologues to which i am addicted with intimates i would suddenly be checked by the cool impersonal stare of nieces or nephew they did not know they were doing it but i knew they were taking my measure they were not only an unending interest and joy to me but a salutary correction as they have continued to be to this day but before i was really sure of my standing with them though quite reassured as to that with their elders and just as i had put the finishing touches to my madame roland i was snatched away from titusville by a hurried letter from mr mcclure i must come at once to new york and write a life of napoleon bonaparte End of chapter 7